Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. Hey, this is Cody M with the Audio Dungeon Discord server. Um, Colin Green actually recommended that I listen to your show, and I'm glad I did. I started um, with a few episodes back, and I'm really enjoying uh, your content so far. Um, And I know you were kind of nervous about your upcoming game with uh, other adults as opposed to playing with your children. Um, And based off what you've talked about so far, it sounds to me like everything's going to be just fine. Um, I think the direction you're going with the one-page dungeon and a short dungeon crawl, it's a great great way to get a feel for the system, especially White Box or OD&D, um, as opposed to trying to start out with something a little, a little more complex. Um, anyway, I, you know, I hope you have a good time gaming, and uh, I, think, I think you're going to do just great. So um, keep it up, and I will catch you later. Hi Robert, it's Colin's Bike Pit. Just calling in to say good luck with your game later. Um, I'm off to work and I'm going to be listening to your super long episode. I can't wait. Catch you later, man. Oh, holy cow. So, um, yes. Uh, it appears that I have now jumped uh, platforms and I'm uh, getting listeners from uh, from outside Anchor. Um, so that's cool. Uh, so far, my only experience with uh, Audio Dungeon is um, uh, listening to Hex Talk, but I'll have to uh, check out uh, some of the other content available on that platform. But um, anyways, thank you very much, uh, Cody and uh, Colin, for your uh, for wishing me uh, wishing me good luck on my uh, my game. So obviously that was uh, nearly a week ago that um, I played that or I, I ran that game, and uh, um, I kind of basically I took like a the better part of a week off to kind of recharge um, after I do something really intense that involves hanging out with other people that I don't know, or sometimes even with people that I do know. I need to recharge by being like completely alone. So, um, it's called being an introvert, uh, introverts recharge through solitude. So, um, so I just kind of took some time off and, uh, you know, didn't record anything or think about things and stuff like that. So, um, I'm sure people are kind of wondering how did this go? Um, and actually, it went really well. Um, it went well enough that people want to keep playing. So I suppose that's like as well as it could possibly have gone. Um, um, like I said, I think I probably wouldn't have been too disappointed if they didn't want to play again, because then at least I wouldn't have to do any more work. But um, but they do. So um, So now I have to put all my plans that I had on the back burner into effect. Um, basically, I want to do a couple of things with this that I've never done before, but I've always wanted to do. Um, and one is to run like a complete sandbox campaign where I don't actually make any 
real suggestions. You know, I let them make all the choices about what their what their goals are, what their direction is, and things like that. Um, I did try to do that once before when I was running. I, I attempted to run a game over a forum, kind of where people would post their their moves in the forum, and it wouldn't be played in real time. That ended up not working out for a lot of reasons, and I would definitely not recommend trying to run a game like that for people you don't know very, very well. Because a certain percentage, and I forget what the percentage actually is, but a certain percentage of communication is lost over completely uh, digital communication. Like, so basically... When we when humans communicate with each other, it's not just about the words they say, it's about tone of voice, it's about facial expression, it's about body language, and it's about the real-time context. When you remove all those things, a certain percentage of your message is getting lost, and you can fill in those blanks a lot easier when you're doing it with people you have known for a long time. When you're doing it with people you've never met before, it's almost impossible to tell what people's real mood is. And I felt that we all, I don't know, I I ended up feeling like people weren't having any fun. And maybe they really were, but it just seemed everybody was very snarky and complaining. And I think it's really easy to to not get the subtle, you know, you, you don't know when people are being ironic or when people are being, like, funny, you know, because you can't really... You can't see their face and you can't hear their their tone of voice. So you can predict it if it's like with your best friend or something, you know what their sense of humor is like. So I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend going out and starting a a, a virtual game with a bunch of people you've never met. Um but I did I did hope to kind of do a sandbox game with them. And what I found is they just took whatever the first adventure hook was. Like they didn't consider, you know, I put a bunch of things out and they're like, no, 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 we're doing this, you know. So, you know, that's the thing about sandboxes is that uh, the players have to cooperate too. They have to actually pick and choose if they're just going to take blindly whatever the first adventure hook that wandered into their lap is, then you might as well not run a sandbox. So they kind of have to be up for uh, making those choices. Anyways, I would like to do that this time. I would like to just throw some stuff out there and then they can tell me what sounds cool. And I would also like, if it's going to involve some traveling, I would like to try hex crawling, um, which is one of the reasons I've been listening to Hex Talk. And uh, also, um, Matt Finch just had a really long interview with Bill Webb. It was really more of a discussion. Um, they just basically talked together for about 90 minutes, um, about how to run a hex crawl. And that's, you can get that on, uh, Matt Finch's, uh, YouTube channel, Uncle Matt's D&D studio. Um, even if you don't want to run a hex crawl, you should probably check it out because it's, you know, two, two great minds of the OSR just talking about running games and stuff. It just, it's just pure gold. Um, except for the brief lull where uh, you have to uh, watch Bill Webb eat sunflower seeds um, until Matt gets back from having a break. Um, although that's a good, you know, good time to go to the toilet yourself. So, anyways, 
Um, I would like to start doing those things. So now I'm going to have to be like, oh, yeah, I need to get a map and make a rumor table and, you know, things like that. Um, so that they, so that when I, when I ask them to choose what their next adventure is, they have some choices. They actually have some things they can choose, uh, choose from. <sighs> so I'm still pretty nervous about this, I think, cause it's, um, it's still pretty, it's still pretty new, but they were a good bunch of people actually. And, um, I think I will, I will enjoy, um, running a game from, for them on a regular basis. So, um, another couple of things that happened, um, when I first, when I first realized that this game was going to happen, um, when I first had enough respondents that I was going to actually have to go ahead and, and, and do this, um, I posted it on one Facebook group, which was the OD&D Facebook group. Um, even virtual social media interaction tends to uh trigger my social anxiety um and i was especially at that point still nervous enough that i just didn't want to uh i didn't want to elicit a lot of comments so i only posted in that one group and you know saw kind of if anybody would uh you know interact with that post at all um, once, once I had run the game and it went well, I felt a little bit more confident. So I posted in a wide variety of groups. I posted in the OD and D group and the retro clone group in the swords and wizardry and the official swords and wizardry group, which are two different groups. Um, I did not post in the swords and wizardry legion group for the one thing, because my understanding of Swords and Wizardry Legion was you had to run Swords and Wizardry Light, and I didn't run Light, I ran White Box, and they're almost the same thing, but not quite. Um, and the other reason was I did not want to fish for anything, which is also why I did not post on the Uncle Matt's D&D Studio um, Facebook page, because again, I didn't want to fish for anything. Also, um, my understanding is uh, Matt Finch. Matt Finch's preferred flavor of Swords and Wizardry is Swords and Wizardry com complete. Um, and uh, I didn't know if he'd really be that that interested in somebody running a white box game. So um, it turns out that uh, he was, and he's a member of some of the groups that I did post in, and my post got a like from him. So it's like, wow, okay. So <laughs> I posted something, and Matt Finch gave it a like, and it's like, uh, that's amazing. The other thing is that even though I didn't post in the Swords and Wizardry um, Legion page, uh, Mike uh, Battolato, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, um, saw the post in the one of the Swords and Wizardry groups, and he's like, "Hey, PM me for some prices for running a game and stuff." And basically, because um, I, I live abroad, uh, they can't post anything internationally, which I, you know, I already knew that. I I know how international postage works. That's one of the reasons why I order all my family's gifts <laughs> through Amazon um, USA, so that things are posted from within the United States. Because international shipping is still really, really expensive. Um, but he did uh, basically um, 
give me pretty much every single thing that Frog God Games makes for Swords of Wizardry as a PDF, as you know, something like $250 worth of PDFs. So I've got plenty of material uh, to run, including some things I had my eye on for a while that um, I hadn't got around to purchasing yet. Uh, the Cyclopean Deep, Deeps stuff, which will be good because I did actually put an entrance to the Underdark in their path already. I mean, they really shouldn't go down that because that's really high level adventures and they're still level one. But, you know, if they do, I will have plenty of things to kill them with. Mm-hmm. And um, also the Hexcrawl Chronicles. You know, speaking of running hex crawls, so I've been looking through those. Um, lots of really good stuff there. So, so um, all this is like really amazing and overwhelming because at the end of the day, um, I ran Swords and Wizardry because I like Swords and Wizardry, and I wanted to run Swords and Wizardry. <laughs> and uh, you know, not to get like you know free stuff, but I got free stuff as well. So yeah, it's uh, quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of developments. So, um, how did the game go? Um, one thing is, um, I invited my, my DM in the game that I, that I'm a player in. I invited him to be a player. I think I mentioned this before as kind of an anchor player. First of all, he's played AD&D, so he's familiar with an old school system and it wouldn't be as foreign to him. Um, we ended up using a descending armor class and he was really good at, at making sure, like helping explain how it works. Um, so that took a little bit of the pressure off me. Um, and also, you know, just from, from playing old school D and D, no matter what kind of flavor of it is, you just, you are a little bit more familiar with, I don't, with resolving things without making skill checks is basically, I think that to put it in a nutshell to, uh, to come across some kind of an obstacle or situation and think of how you're going to resolve it without looking at your character sheet to see where your biggest bonuses are. You know, that's basically, you know, that kind of general philosophy is what I was hoping he would help people with. So that worked out well. Um, one of the players had played basic D and D back in the day and basic D and D and OD and D aren't, are not worlds apart. So I think it was very familiar for him as well. We all rolled stuff up right at the table. Uh, Six players, not a single cleric. Nobody rolled high enough on their wisdom to be tempted to play a cleric. Which also meant no XP bonuses for high wisdom. So uh, um, (laughs) we had two fighters, one of whom chose to play a dwarf. Two magic users, one of whom chose to play an elf. Two thieves one of whom chose to play an elf and the other one was a classic halfling and then a human fighter and a human magic user. Actually a pretty good party. I, inv- I used a house rule where if you have a plus one bonus, which is the highest bonus you can get in white box anyway, in your spell casting ability or your prime requisite, um, then you get an extra spell, which if if there were any clerics, it would have been getting a spell at first level rather than not having one. And for the magic users, it meant getting an extra spell. So they each had two spells apiece that they were able to uh, able to prepare. So I think they had, there was 
sleep and protection from evil or protection from chaos. And the other one would show sleep and hold portal. So, you know, they took a lot of firepower in there for level one characters. Also, I'm sure one of the fighters at least had cha- or had full plate because full plate's only 50 gold pieces. So they were a pretty, they were a biggish party and they were well prepared. Um, even though I was a little bit nervous that they had, well, if the cleric hadn't had a 15 or a higher wisdom, they wouldn't have had a healing spell anyway, but you know. You do just kind of have that residual nervousness of like, ooh, no healer in the party. Uh, having said that, the way I built this dungeon, it was not a combat-heavy dungeon. And for so they spent a lot of time in town. I was I, I, I kind of knew this was going to happen, that they were going to spend a lot of time wandering around the town getting all the information um, before they actually set out for the uh to explore the dungeon and there's just no way around that i mean the the only the only shortcut i could have taken there was would have been to just hand them a sheet of information and uh say all right this is what you know let's get on with it and you know we we could have had a much quicker game if we'd done that but uh i really wanted to i really wanted to set up this precedent of that they can get more or less information depending on how much time they take trying to get that information. I wanted to try to, you know, start that off as their meaningful choices. Like if you guys choose to gather as much information as you possibly can, then uh, you will go into the situation better prepared. And if you choose to just, say, I think I got the gist of it and take off and, you know, run headlong into danger, then you will be slightly less well-prepared, possibly to your peril. Um, so we did have quite an extended intro, you know, as as they kind of um, talked to various witnesses and stuff like that to kind of get, a, get as much backstory as they could. When they went to that when they reached the tower they were very nervous about the frogs closing in around them they three of them the three strongest grabbed the iron ring of the trap door and they all rolled their open doors check and they got it open on their first try and when that happens the frogs don't attack the way i planned this was that if you fail your open doors check the frogs attach attack which is what happened when my daughter playtested this. And in that scenario, they had to fight the frogs, and my son had his magic user burn his sleep spell, which did put all the frogs to sleep. Um, the grown-up party didn't have to fight the frogs, so they didn't have to burn their sleep spell. And in any case, they had two sleep spells between them. So even if they had, they still would have had one more to, to, to expend. It's a bit of a shame that the frogs didn't attack because one of them was a halfling and I was going to have that frog try to try to swallow the half the giant frog like the really large one I was going to try to have him swallow the the halfling and swim away. But, you know, fair's fair. Um my uh my notes <laughs> that I wrote myself 
said if they get the door open in a oneer and on their first try, they make it down without being attacked by frogs. They did bring a couple of fishermen with them, one of whom had attempted to explore the dungeon on his own and had come back unconscious, floating in his fishing boat adrift and, you know, been having nightmares and actually got a tattoo of Rultzak on his arm. And they were really nervous about him. They, 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 they were sure he was going to stab them in the back. And they're like, has he got any weapons? I was like, well, he's a fisherman. He does have like a fishing knife on him and stuff. You know, that's just a kind of a thing that they all have, you know. So they, somebody was always keeping an eye on him. In fact, they eventually got them so, they eventually got so nervous about him that they actually sent him back up to the, to the roof of the tower. And they're like, like, go watch the boats or something. And, and one of them was like, but there's still giant frogs up there. And the, and the other one's like, I don't care as long as he's not here to cut our throats when we're not looking. So, um, there was never, like, that's not what the, this NPC was going to do, but I love it when when players are paranoid. I love it when when they make the adventure scarier than it is because they don't know where the danger is coming from. So even things that aren't dangerous freak them out. Um, then let's see. Oh, they did a, something really, really unusual. When they got to the, uh, the trapped step, now when my daughter reached the trapped step, she just freaked out. And so much so that she didn't even trust herself to step over it and it was a miracle to her like when when she managed to just successfully evade the trap by skipping that step but they they figured out the the grown-ups figured out that they could skip the step quickly but one of them said can i uh can i scrape that grease into a little glass vial um, and to, to speed things up, I just basically, uh, I, I used the, uh, equipment slots that you have in, uh, untold adventures where there's just five blank equipment slots. And if you feel like you need something, then you declare that you have it and cross one of your slots off. So he said, you know, I've got a little glass jar with me. Can I scoop this grease up? It's oil. He doesn't know this, but it's oil of slipperiness. And I was like, well, you know what? Yeah, you can totally do that. Because I wanted to see what he wanted to do with this later. Most likely he didn't know himself at the time. Um when he when they finally came to using it, they 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 reached a door and they could hear chanting on the other side of the door and this was actually just a trick. It was just an illusion. But of course they don't know that. They hear chanting and they're like there's cultists in there. They wanted to get that door open quietly so they could you know ambush them so they they're like do we think that the hinges are going to squeak and stuff and it's like this is a tower that's underwater everything in here is damp everything in here is rusty yeah it's going to squeak so they rubbed that they rubbed the oil of slipperiness again not knowing precisely what it is just that it's oil of some some kind they rubbed it on the hinges and then one of the thieves, and they chose the halfling thief, or the halfling thief volunteered, was going to try to open this door as quietly as possible. And I'm like, okay, this door opens outward, so where is everybody else standing? And as soon as I said that, they're like, we're halfway up the stairs. Not as far as the trapped step again, but halfway up the stairs, like well out of the way, okay. I'm like, all right. And as for you, halfling thief, um, I need you to make a saving throw. 
because basically, so oil is slipperiness. There's no friction now on on those hinges at all. So that door is going to open much quicker and easier than he he intends. He was just hoping that it would open quietly. <laughs> so he he made a save, and I was like, the door almost slipped. Like it, it feels like it almost jumps out of your hand. Like it, it's just going to slam and hit the door. But because you made your save, you managed first of all not to be carried with it and slammed into the wall yourself, but also to catch it before it actually does slam into the wall and and make a you know. But he was quite, he's like, wow, why am I making a saving throw? It's like, oh, just do it. <laughs> and um, nothing happened. And I mean, there wasn't going to be any damage and there were no cultists in there after all. So there was really no negative effect. But I just thought, what? yeah, what's going to happen when you put oil of slipperiness on hinges? So then they go into that room and they find a door with a uh, a very bizarre opening mechanism and this is something that i i prepped the dungeon really rough and ready actually a long time ago i used to just have it i used to just have my notes stuffed in like a little bag that i could take with me to the game shop and just if i saw anybody like hanging around who didn't seem to have anything to do be like hey you guys want to play a quick game of D but because this was like a planned game that people you know i felt it had been really built up I kind of went through and made sure that every room had some dressing in it, even if there wasn't anything of consequence in it, so that it would feel, you know, interesting. Which, you know, maybe is a mistake, because it means that empty rooms are places that they spend a lot of time in, rather than, oh, this room is empty, let's move on. Again, we could have probably got through the adventure a lot quicker. But I kind of wanted it to feel... I wanted it to feel real and wanted it to feel dangerous even when it wasn't. And also the way that I, I'm, I want to run games going forward. And this is a new DMing, a new DMing technique that I'm uh, experimenting with, but I want to give them details and give them the opportunity to ask more questions about details and, you know, have their success, um, based on how thoroughly they interact with what I describe and how thoroughly they describe their interactions rather than just a bunch of dice rolling. But that only works if I give enough details that it's not always obvious. You know, like the, the reason I'm describing this so well is there must be something about it. For instance, a long time ago, um, I was in a group, we were playing... Um, I can't remember now if this was, uh, I think this was actually the Horde of the Dragon Queen. It was a 5e game. We enter this room and the DM, you know, draws this little uh, rectangle on the floor when he draws out the room on the, uh, on the battle map. We're like, what's that rectangle? And he's like, it's a rug. And we're like, is it covering a pit trap? Is it a rug of smothering? What's up with that? And he's like, hey, maybe it's just a rug. And we're like, you've never drawn a rug on a battle mat before in like over a year of playing. And now you're drawing a rug, you know, and none of us would touch that rug. And except for the druid who actually turned into a giant elk and then lay on the rug on purpose. And it was a rug of smothering, but he was a giant elk, so he couldn't really be smothered, smothered by it. So 
you know, we all got to avoid it. But the thing is that we, we all knew that there was something up with that rug because he never drew a rug before. So if you only ever give details when the details are dangerous, then your players will always know that there's danger by how much detail you put into it. Whereas if you put detail into things that are innocuous, then they really will have to decide, does that particular detail sound like it's something I need to be more aware of, or is it just flavor text? So I wanted to make sure that I gave details even when there was nothing really, no real significance, you know. Because when you enter an empty room in the dungeon, it's not just an empty room. It's not like, uh, you know, oh, the people here have recently moved out and there's nothing but like, you know, holes on the walls where they used to hang their pictures or something like that, you know. It might be empty of treasure and enemies and traps and tricks, but it's not literally empty. So that was another thing that kind of slowed our progress down because every time they, they entered a room... They interacted with all the details, and sometimes there no, nothing came of it because they were just details, and sometimes they managed to get things. So I rolled up this – I wanted there to be something about this door, and I rolled it up on some random tables, and I, and I got an unusual opening mechanism, which was that you have to gently open a triangle. And that was a really difficult thing to figure out how it works in real time. But I decided that it has a triangle-shaped plate on it that you can very gingerly pull back and it will bring basically iron bars at, at the each of the apexes. It's an equilateral triangle. Once you extend it all the way, it'll click and then you can turn it and that will open the door. But the triangle bit is a bit loose. <laughs> so if you if you jerk it too fast or too roughly then the triangle bit falls off and then you just have these, the bars are still pushed into the door. There's maybe like two millimeters clearance. At that point, it's probably still possible to pry them out with a dagger and then pull them the rest of the way and you can still just about do it. The problem is they look like buttons. So sure enough, they did take the triangle off. And then they pushed all three buttons, and when you push them in, now they're two millimeters inside the door, and you'll never be able to pry them out. So that door was not going to be open. Instead, they decided to spend like two turns um, getting the uh, hinges off the door and taking the door off artificially. And uh, I kept rolling checks to see if the tide would come in. So that did hurry them up sometimes when I would uh, roll a, a tide check and they're like, yeah, they, we don't want to be trapped down here, but they got the door open. <laughs> so, um, so they managed to do that. They managed to find that room and the secret room beyond it. And then they spent a lot of time dealing with the trapped chest. Um, but they managed to open the chest without triggering the trap. They, they even have now a little vial of it's paralyzing gas so if you if you shatter it paralyzing gas will come out they haven't used it yet but they still have it so i'll need to remind them that they have that also if anybody falls down the stairs that glass will break and then everybody will have to make a save or be paralyzed for like 2d6 rounds or something so little things like that they slowed us down too but it wasn't boring you know because they, they keep trying to figure out how to get around these things. 
Um, and there's no like rules that they can make. They just have to ask for more details and try things and stuff like that. So they finally got into some combat with the uh, headless cult member that reanimated. Um, they managed, I mean, one headless cult member against six, you know, PCs. They shut him down pretty quickly. Um, at this point, we were running pretty late. Like they were really wanting to hurry us along. And I was actually a half a mind to just skip the final combat. But I don't know. The momentum was that they were just going to go down that door and they open the last door and they find the cultists um, about ready to summon Rultzak. And this is where, when my daughter play tested it, it ended in a TPK because the, uh, the cultist won the initiative, the cult mystic cast hold person, and they only got one person, um, but they held the fighter. And then the uh, other cult members ran up and proceeded to stab everybody else to death with their knives. Um, so uh, I was pretty sure something like that was going to happen this time. And again, the cultist won the initiative and the cult mystic cast hold person and got three people. So we held one of the magic users, one of the thieves, and one of the fighters. So I, I was looking pretty grim. Um, and then because of where they were on the stairs, they made it pretty clear that they didn't enter the, the room proper. So they were still on the stairs. So there was three people in the front line. So each of them took a, took a, a dagger attack. The damage was low enough that nobody actually died. So they all survived. Um, a couple of them couldn't do any returning blows because they were held. Um, so they didn't get a they didn't get an attack back. But that was pretty much it. There weren't any ranged attacks. I guess some of the other cultists could have thrown daggers or something. But I don't know. I feel like you can't throw daggers behind. The, I guess they could have thrown them again at the front line. I don't know. Also, the thing is that with their the three of the cultists in melee range, I feel like the other ones would have been strategic enough not to want to do some kind of a ranged attack into melee and take a 50 50 chance of uh hitting their own people so that was the end of the cultist round and then um we had a few ranged attacks when the the party went they missed but at the end of that round one of the magic users was still still up so he cast his sleep spell and he rolled 2d6, and the cult, the, the ordinary cult members are just one hit die creatures. No, they're two hit die creatures, but that's still 2d6. You get 2d6 of them. He rolled 2d6, and he got eight, and there were only six of them, so they all fell asleep. And that was them. They were shut down. At this point, well, first of all, we were really, really late. Like, we needed to get out of there because they were going to lock the doors soon. So I thought, six, six cult members asleep. So now um, the, the cult mystic is going to have to fight alone. He doesn't have the means to summon Rultzak on his own because two of them were going to be in the process of opening the, the hatches to let the river water in, which is the first step in, uh, in summoning Rultzak. But uh, they were now asleep, so they weren't going to be able to do that. And we were late, so we needed to wrap this up. So I just decided to do a quick morale check, and you know he failed it. 
So I'm like, oh, good. He fails the morale check. He surrenders. So, you know, there's still some unexplored rooms, but they can basically, you know, if they spend some time tying up cult members and stuff so that they can't get up to any mischief, they can explore the rest of the dungeon in relative safety, or they can decide to just uh, get up with their loot and come back another time. Um, but you know, a lot of the, a lot of the pressure's off. They've got live prisoners so they can interrogate. So I've got to make up some backstories and stuff, which I've already been doing. Um, basically because they didn't get to fight real sack, but they know what it looks like and they know it exists. Now this has to be a kind of a, another, a villain that they either want, they can seek out or it will come back sometime when they're stronger or when they least expect it. And what I decided was this story, this, this area, this dungeon is in the middle of the Amarin estuary in the Lost Lands, which isn't to say that I'm setting this in the Lost Lands, but I've always kind of wanted to take certain bits of the Lost Lands and just stick them in my room or stick them in my world for one thing, because I want to make sure that there's that rap and Afuk is there. So what I've been working on for a backstory is that there's the area zero area zero A of Rappanathuk, which is the cave of the Kraken. Now that's the cave of Rultzak. And basically the the idea is that one of the priests of Orcus came to them and convinced them to relocate to this tower and summon Rultzak and lure him to the Amran estuary for his own purposes. And uh, they'll be able to get that information if they interrogate the cult mystic, which will give them a lot of information. Well, first of all, it will suggest that Rultzak has probably gone back there now that the cult is defeated. So they, they won't necessarily have to expect Rultzak to be prowling the Amran estuary and feel like they need to go seek him out um, and deal with him in the short term. However, if they do want to go seek him out, they can go up the coast and look for his sea cave. And that will lead them into the depths of Rappanathuk if they survive it. And I'll basically just reskin that Kraken as a giant version of Rultzak because they never really did find out how big Rultzak was. So he could be a 20-hit die Kraken just with skeletal uh, skeletal tentacles, like skull tentacles. Anyways, those are some of the plans that I'll need to start fleshing out. Um, I have uh, got hold of some of the uh, uh, D30 Sandbox Companion uh, hex crawl worksheets and stuff, and I've been uh, kind of eyeballing bits of the... uh, bits of the Lost Land that I am planning to use, and then I'm going to use the... uh, like expand them from the 50 hex scale down to 25 and then down lower than that um, and stuff so I can, you know, start working on overland movement and things like that. And 
I don't know, make up some rumors that suggest some of the other adventures that I'd like to run so that I can say, well, you guys have been hanging around town. You've heard about this. You've heard about this. You've heard about this. What do you want to go? What do you want to do? Um, and uh, yeah, we'll just see how it goes from there. I have a, a short waiting list too of people who would like to join if a space opens up. So if we get any dropouts or if I decide I can handle more than six players, uh, we're covered. So that's cool. Um, if anybody has like experience doing a lot of hex crawling and a lot of, uh, sandbox type adventures, could you let me know if it's feasible that I just have a more or less blank hex map without even really a lot of physical features and use random tables to generate literally all of that? And so like, I won't build the West unless they decide they want to head West you know, or, or is that just not really going to work out? I'm not talking about creating it at the table. I would at least roll up enough for a session's travel, but you know, anyways, any advice on that much appreciated. And until then play well and let the dice roll where they may.